factory, if you grab your Bible and turn to John chapter 11, we're going to read there uh, from John 11. I I think uh, when it comes to uh, thinking about faith and hope and loss, uh, there are several passages that come to mind, but none of them embody, I think, the depth of grief, but also the tenderness or the kindness of Jesus as well as John 11. And so we're going to read there and then we will pray and turn to the explanation of God's word. So John 11, starting in verse one, the scriptures say this. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we take the safety cover off of the power box and we dig in to where the wires are, to the, to the deepest places, Lord, as we think about loss and hurt and pain and the future and separation and difficulty and grief and mourning, all of these things which are so very real. Father, first I pray that we would be able to do this in a way that is compassionate and kind not weighed down with facts and truth, but clothed in humility and compassion and truth, which is the way that you ministered. Father, I pray that we would see your heart for suffering people. And I pray that as we attempt to come to some conclusions and some hope, that we would see your way and your will, and your answers as good answers. And even if we don't receive a full explanation of everything to our satisfaction that removes each and every hurt and every bit of pain, Father, we pray that we would look to you and say, you are God, we are not, and we trust you. And so we thank you for this word. We pray that you would speak to us now. Show us Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
Uh, in the middle of the Gospel of John, we encounter a significant passage. Jesus has spent the, the first uh, number of chapters of this book. Jesus doesn't act based on the outline of the book, right? He lived his life, and when John put the book together, he built the outline around the things that he saw in Jesus' life. Jesus enjoyed a year of very prosperous, effective ministry where everyone who heard what he said was just super excited about the message, and they were into it, and they were listening, and they were responding. And then uh, the second year is when Jesus starts to say things that are a little mysterious to people, and they're stopping and saying, wait a minute, what did you just say? You know, what, what, are, what, are you, what are you talking about? What are the implications and the connections of what you're saying? And then in the third year, his enemies had really developed their arguments and they developed strategies for coming against him. And now, at this point, Jesus is under fire from his enemies. They are, they are closing in on him. Uh, he's not backing away or uh, saying anything. Jesus is not a politician. He doesn't change his message. He continues to say difficult things to people. He continues to do good works. And in the midst of this, his friend Lazarus gets sick. And his friends send word and they say, come and help us. Now, this is a region that um, Jesus had been in. And as he was teaching prior, the, the enemies that he had, had had arranged themselves against him. They were seeking to stone him. He slipped away from them, and, and they, they were unable to do that. But now his friends ask him to come, and he doesn't go. They realize, the friends, that Jesus has the power to help Lazarus. Mary and Martha know him. They know that he healed a blind man. They know that there was a young woman who was sick and her father came to Jesus and Jesus healed her from a distance. They've heard these stories and so they send word and they say, come. And Jesus, who has the power to fix the situation, does not go. Why would he do that? Right, have you ever... Have you ever thought about that when you think about your own circumstances, your own difficulty, and your own trials and suffering? We pray and we ask and we say, Lord, would you please act and change? And it does not seem that anything happens. And we sit back and say, where were you in these circumstances? Why didn't you act? A matter of fact, Jesus speaks in verse 4, and he talks about Lazarus' illness, and he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay? What Jesus says is, this illness is not going to end in death. It's so that God's name and God's fame will be magnified. And we'll see as we come to the end that that is the truth, that the Son of God will be glorified through it, If you don't know how the story ends, we just read the story, and you may think, okay, that's the ending, but there's more to the story that happens afterwards. There's a a piece that a lot of times we don't don't read or we don't pay attention to. 
So we see that Jesus says that he loves the sisters and the brother. And so what does he do? Verse 6 says that he remains in that place. Sorry, verse 5 says that he remains in that place two more days. And then in verse 7, he says, let's go to Judea again. Now, his disciples probably thought that when he said, we're not going there, we're not going there because if Jesus goes there, he's going to be attacked. Right? He's going to be stoned because that's what was going to happen last time. And so he says, no, we're not going to go. This is sickness isn't going to end in death. And so they're like, okay, safe. You know, we're going to stay here because what's most important is that Jesus remains safe, not that he go and save his friend. And then two days later, he says, we're going back there. And they're like, wait a minute. Where, why, are we, why are we going back there? Why, why, would we, why would we go there? They were trying to kill you there. And Jesus says this, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What he's saying here, what he's teaching his followers is this. If you walk in the light and you walk in the truth, if you follow God in the way that he has revealed in Scripture, you will never go wrong. But if you are committed to consistently denying the light or fighting the light, resisting what God has revealed, you will certainly fail. And we'll see this in a big way in the end of the story. After saying these things, verse 11, it says, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And at this point, the disciples are really struggling and they're really uh, mystified by this. They're like, we don't get it. If he's asleep, right? You know, we didn't go because of the risk to you, but now we're going to go back there and he's just asleep. Like if he's sleeping, he's going to get better, right? Get some rest, little matzo ball soup, you know, and you're going to, he's going to be fine. They don't, they're, they're not getting it. They missed the point. He says to them, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Hold on a second. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Okay. The sisters see their brother in difficulty and sickness, and they send word to Jesus much in the way that we pray and we say, Lord, act and intervene and please do something. And Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. He's, he's using pain and difficulty as an opportunity for belief. God uses Difficult situations, struggle, and pain so that we can believe? I think that at this point, many people hear these things. They see the power of God and they see his control and his influence over the world. The Bible does teach that God has absolute control over all circumstances and that nothing resists him. And we get into a place where we have to address this question. Are we toys or tools or are we, are we there for the amusement of God? Does he truly care? God the Father and the Son allowed something painful to happen for their own glory is what 
is being said here. That's the implication that we can draw from it. That's difficult. I enjoy the fact that the Bible digs deep into these questions because these are the things that we ask and struggle with, aren't they? We, we look at our pain and our grief and our loss and we say, wow, why did this happen? Jesus says we're going to go back. I think we got to stick up for Thomas here just for a second. What I really like about this, right, here's doubting Thomas, right? Like this is all he's known for is the fact that he was like, I'm not going to believe unless I'm actually able to put my finger into the wounds. And everybody's like doubting Thomas. What I, what I love about what Thomas does here is he's like, oh, you're going back there. We're going to go with you too. And we, if you die, we're going to die with you. They were committed to Jesus. They believed what he said. They, they might not understand what's going on, but they trusted him and they trusted his motives. It, notice there it says that they called, uh, he was called Didymus or the twin. I wonder if that was kind of like they were, they were ripping on him a little bit, you know, like that, not that he looked like Jesus, but that he acted like him or talked like him and they called him the twin. That's like that he was an imitation of Jesus all the time. You're going to go there and die? We're going to go there with you. We're going we're gonna to come right with you. So, so they head to the place, right? And we now see Mary and Martha coming to Jesus. First, first, Martha comes and she speaks out of her own deep hurt. She says, if you had been here, he would have lived. And if you will, he'll live right now. And we act, we, we we, we lean over in the story, right? And we say, is Jesus going to do something? Something going to happen? And he says, your brother will rise again. You can feel the sigh in her response. She says, this is in verse 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Your brother will rise again. And she's like, I know. That's what we believe. That one day, he'll rise again. But Jesus pulls her up, right? He, he, he tries to, to gather her attention here and move her away from this place where she's receiving the truth and saying that, that she has to accept the fact that God has smashed her dream, right? Her dream was to be part of this family and to enjoy and to have the security of having a big brother who provided for them and cared for them. Losing this man in their lives was, was, was meant poverty for them. She asks Jesus for something and he says he will rise again and she sighs and hears it as a platitude. One day everything will be right. But Jesus corrects her. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, I think Martha's response is typical of the way that we respond in the middle of pain and suffering and difficulty. Notice what she says. She says, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. She doesn't actually say that she believes what he said. 
she believes something else. She doesn't actually believe that he could and would live again at this moment. She boxes herself in and doesn't allow herself to believe beyond it. She, she defines what he is going to do or what he is willing to do based on her recent experience with him. We sent for you. You could have healed him. You could have fixed this situation from happening, but you didn't come. And so, yes, I believe these things about you. I believe you're, you're the Messiah. But, what, you know, what you're saying, I'm just, I'm not going to fully engage that because my heart is broken. So she leaves and she goes to find her sister Mary and she says in private, the teacher's here calling for you. And Mary comes. Uh, she chose not to go when, when Martha went out. Uh, the, those who stayed back with Mary go with her. You know, she's, she's the one who is emotional and completely and utterly wrecked and raw about this. Martha's, I feel like, keeping it all together. You know, she goes to Jesus first, and then Mary comes next, and she falls at his feet crushed. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't have a saying of comfort for her here. He doesn't respond with a similar line or a, a piece of, of, of something that she's supposed to react with and, and to believe. And this is, this is when, as we read through the story, it's like something's going to happen here, right? You know, something, something's building. We're, we're building to something, in verse 33, it says that Jesus sees her weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. These are strong Bible words to describe Jesus' emotional reaction to the situation. We need when we suffer and when we struggle and when we encounter difficulty, it's important to, to, to remember this truth that when we look at Jesus, the Son of God, we see God the Father as well. That's what the Bible says, that he's the exact image of God's likeness. Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And so we think at times that God is distant and far removed, but brought into this situation here and seeing the weeping and the pain, Jesus is deeply moved. He identifies with her. He understands that it's important for us to look at this and to say, when I am upset and when I grieve and when I feel loss tremendously, that Jesus understands and knows and that he's not uncompassionate. And that he doesn't say, you know what? I've given you 78,000 good things in your life. When are you going to get over this? He doesn't say, move on already. Deal with it. I'm God. I choose. I make decisions and you need to live with it. That's not the way he acts. That's not the way he responds. They look at Jesus and they say, look at how much he cared. He loved him. 
But there are those in the crowd, right, who aren't going to let this go, right? In verse 36, see, see how he loved him? That's, that's the compassionate crowd. It says in verse 37, but some of them said, wait a minute, he opened the eyes of that blind man. This is just chapter 9. This is recent history. He opened the eyes of the blind man. Couldn't he have kept this guy from dying? There's a, a disconnect here. He has the power to do anything. Shouldn't he have moved into this situation and changed it? Shouldn't he have done something? And then the scripture says that Jesus wept. Why does he weep here? I think that there's a lot going on. I think that Jesus is weeping for his friend who has died. I think that he is weeping over his own personal sense of loss. The scripture teaches that he is a man and that he is fully God and fully man. And so he experiences emotions like normal people. Okay, so think about this. When we grieve, many times we think, oh, you know what, I just need to, I need to get back to life and I need, to, I need to get past these feelings or I need to just, you know, I need to be mature. Or I... That's not the way that Jesus thinks about it. He grieves and mourns and focuses on what's in front of him and the pain that he's feeling. I think he grieves for his friends, Mary and Martha, and for their loss. But I also think that he sees all the suffering in the world and all the pain and all the loss. He sees the evil that comes from mankind's rebellion against God, which introduces sin into the world. He acknowledges this truth that the soul that sins will die. That, that those who are separated from God will be separated from him for all eternity. And that, that the image of that or the way that that translates into the world is physical death. Jesus knows that there's none good, no, not one. And he loves men and women, but he knows their fate. And so he chooses to illustrate at this point. We go back and we, we look earlier in the passage. Jesus says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. I think the reason he says that is to let us know that to him, that's all death is. That's what it's like to God. You just need to wake them up. You just need to, to do something. Just need, to, need to, to call to them and wake them up. And so he can solve the problem. He can fix it. But there is a reason why he doesn't. There's a reason why God does not immediately fix all of the problems in the world. Every single difficulty that we face. And that is what we're wrestling through when we read a story like this and when we consider our own grief. 
And so Jesus says, take away the stone. The response is that, you know, it's been four days. You know, the viewing time is over. We leave the stone shut, right? Because, no, it's not going to be good, Lord. You know, Martha does not believe that something is happening at this point. She still thinks that Jesus is, is saying nice religious words to her to comfort her. And he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so it says that they took away the stone. And so Jesus lifts up his eyes and he speaks. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He, he prayed and interacted with God privately. That's what I believe. That's why he says it this way. He, he prays and then he prays publicly. Thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. I said this on account of all the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. He wants the people to know that what's about to happen is something that has been granted by God, that God is working here. And that it's not that just that Jesus can do magic or something. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. They rolled away the stone. He identifies Lazarus by name, calls him to come out, and he comes out. I, I, th- I think that um, some movies, when they, when they illustrate this, you know, Lazarus just kind of walks out, and he's like, you know, got some grave clothes on him, and everybody's like, oh, it's amazing. I think it was more like, you know, that he was all wrapped up, and he just kind of, like, is moving out very slowly, and because and, and, that's the way they, they would wrap them up in spices and um, and, and, and these big swaths of cloth. And so he comes out, and I think everybody's standing around like, what just happened? You know, and Lazarus is like coming out, and he's like, is that you, Jesus? You know, and Jesus is like, hey, you know. Like, and so he's there, and he's, he's hobbling, and everybody's watching, and I think Jesus is like, somebody untie that guy, you know? Like, and, and so they, they unwrap him, and they let him go, right? And that's it. That's the story, Right? There it is, the glory of God. That's the story that we tell in Sunday school. That God is the giver of life. And that if he can raise Lazarus, he can raise us all. And death is not the end. But there's kind of a, a, I think, a bitter taste that remains. Because when you look through the scriptures, only three or four people get this experience. The, the deliverance from death, the resurrection and the restoration to their story, right? Lazarus comes back to his sisters who without him would be lost. The, uh, the, the, the family or the, the widow at Nain who loses uh, the little boy who Jesus raises, she gets her son back. That's not everybody's story. Jesus said that God is glorified in this. How is the son and the father, how are they glorified? There's there's something happening here in John 11. This is a, a singular miracle. In the gospel, it's the capstone miracle. It's the great miracle and event that ends Jesus' signs. His miracles start when he turns the, the water into wine and then they progress 
uh, getting bigger and bigger and more significant. The man born blind, right, is, that situation is transformed, and people are like, who's ever heard of this? They've, they've heard of blind people being healed, but a man born blind, and now we come to this point where this amazing miracle happens. And it's the end of the signs. What's happening here is that people are being given an opportunity to believe and to choose. To choose. Earlier, Jesus said that those who walk in the light won't stumble. Right? That, that if, they, if they walk in the light that's been revealed to them, they're not going to stumble. But if they choose to walk out of the light, if they choose to reject the light that's shown to them, they will fall. They will fail. And this is the truth of the scriptures, that, that uh, we can either believe what's being revealed to us and shown to us and become wise as we walk in that light, or we can look at truth and be fools and become even more foolish. We can walk in the dark, walking away from the light, and become lost in greater darkness. We start off lost and then wind up really lost. Something twists and changes here at the end of the story as we get to the place where we ask the question, how is the son glorified by this? Jesus points away from himself and he says that it's the father who deserves the praise here. Father, I know that you always hear me. And then he calls Lazarus out and people give glory to God. There's two uses of of the word glory in the gospel, okay? This gospel right here. One is what we think of when we sing all glory to God at Christmas, right? Hooray, God. God is great. Praise him. Give him glory and honor. That's the way that we think of the word glory. In John 12, 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it, right? This is Typical human glory, the kind of glory that we would give to a rock star or a football player, right? Recognizing the awesomeness that's there and the magnificence of who that person is and saying, yes, that is, that's great and worthy of praise. Uh, C.S. Lewis admits that when he became a Christian, at first, or sorry, before he became a Christian, He found in the Bible this demand that that people give glory to God. He found it annoying. He found it it draining and offensive that, that God would require so much praise and focus on himself. That that one who is all sufficient and has everything that he needs and, and lacks nothing, that he would say, Praise me to people. It just seemed a little strange to him. Right? Glorify God. God is revealed as who he is in this miracle. We'll come back to Lewis in just a minute. There's a second usage of glory in the gospel. And the second usage goes like this. In John 7, 39, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Spirit. And it says, This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's another use. John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, 
Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John 13, 31. When they'd gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. He's really laying it on here with the use of this word, right? He's going to give us a hint or a clue to what he's talking about. And then he says this, little children, I am with you yet a while. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. In order to be glorified, he was going to go somewhere where no one could join him. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is his high priestly prayer in the garden. This is the last thing that he says and does before Judas and the soldiers come and take him. When he'd spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It is this miracle in the gospel of John. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead that finally galvanizes or electrifies or energizes Jesus' enemies to say, that guy, if he is not stopped, he he will change everything. We need to oppose him. Professing to be wise, right? They became fools. They didn't love him or want him. They rejected him. And in their foolishness, they become even more foolish. What does it mean that Jesus would be glorified? Look at verse 45 of chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who'd come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation's. And our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. When Jesus talks about receiving glory himself in the resurrection of Lazarus, what he is saying is that when I do this, it will show that power of resurrection comes from God, but it will also show something else. It will also demonstrate something else. It will demonstrate the cost forgiveness of sins. It will demonstrate the cost that that God will have to bear himself in order to show love to sinful humanity. Hebrews 2, 9 says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here's what I believe is going on here in this passage. To go and to heal Lazarus would have been too small a thing. To heal would have been just another miracle 
easily overlooked. To raise from the dead seals the faith of those who are following in belief. It confirms in in power what has been testified to in the word. Jesus says, I can give eternal life. Believe me. See it. But also, to raise the dead confirms the unbelief of the unbelieving. It hardens the heart of those who oppose Jesus and who will not look to him. And they say, we are going to deal with this man and we are going to dispose of him. And so by their own hardness of heart, the Son of God will be glorified on the cross as he dies. This is what I believe we need to look for as we seek hope and we seek to Restore joy in the midst of our suffering. This is, I think, the human heart so craves comfort and relief that if God were to give us everything that we were to ask for, if he were to say, here, I will reverse every bad thing, what we would do is we would say, we have no need of hoping in God. We have no need of depending on him and we would go our own way. We, we would not hang on him. We would not hold close to him. And the truth is, this is what irritated C.S. Lewis, right? Why does God demand praise and focus and attention? Because he must be at the center. He is the best possible thing for us because he is good and he cares and he's the source of every single blessing in our life. This is the difficult truth that I think that the scripture teaches. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to awaken a deaf world. Until we experience pain and suffering, we don't seek him. Until we experience difficulty, we don't look to the Lord and depend on him in the way that we should. And so he speaks to us in our suffering and difficulty and calls us to himself. He is not playing a game with us. What he's doing is speaking to us about matters of the utmost importance. He is crying out and saying, pay attention to the most important Thing, are you right with me? Lazarus' resurrection is good news for all who believe because he demonstrates with the down payment right there that one day he will be able to do all that he has promised. He can resurrect. It's, it's easy for God. In the meantime, what he's doing is he's calling us to believe and to put our faith into him and to say, you are what I need most. You are what I need to look to. You are the source of all goodness and all comfort and all good things. And I will trust you through all difficulty. And so my encouragement to you this morning is this. Believe that there is purpose in difficulty and suffering. Believe that God cares deeply when you go through grief. But he brings us to this place in our life often where we are able to see that Jesus had to go to the cross for us, that he had to take our sins upon himself 
so that they would be punished, so that we could have righteousness and a righteousness that we need to receive from him. He was willing to die to save sinful men and women. And if he was willing to pay that price, then he is willing to walk through all manner of difficulty, all manner of suffering, and to hold us close through it. And so trust him through difficulty and trust him to redeem your tears. In the middle of grief, it is easy to be angry at God. And many people, I have found, confess anger with God with some degree of shame or protectiveness, to which I say this, God already knows. He already knows. He can handle it. And so come to him in faith and say, this is what I am struggling with. And I need you to turn this around. I need you to soften my heart. I need you to help me with my pain. I need you to help me learn how to walk and to take these steps again each and every day. And so my encouragement is for you to look with joy towards Jesus who came and took on humanity. He came into the manger to have a body to place onto the cross so that he could step in as our substitute. That is an amazing act of love. I also urge you to bring out any feelings of of bitterness or anger or rage over suffering and pain in the past and to show them to the Lord and to say, would you please take this away? And I'd urge you in each and every circumstance to come to God like Mary or Martha and to say, if you had been here, things would have been different. And to see the Savior weep and then act to change our ultimate story. Let's pray as we close. Father, I thank you that in each and every circumstance, you have given us an answer. And that answer is that Jesus showed your love for those who were fallen and sinful and separated from you by taking our sins upon himself that we might be righteous. In a room this big, there are going to be those who have never put their faith and trust in you. And so I pray, Lord, this morning as we, as we consider grief and suffering, if there's anyone who's not looked to Jesus for salvation, I pray that they would do so now. We thank you so much that the good news is that you give righteousness to those who don't deserve it, that you put the sins of those who have rebelled against you on your son. And I thank you that those who look to you in faith receive absolute righteousness from you. They don't need to be perfect. They don't need to be amazing. They don't need to do anything other than to say, I need grace and they will receive it from you. And we thank you for that. Father, I pray for those who have struggled with deep hurts and deep pain. I pray they would know that you know what that feels like, that you've confronted it in your own earthly life and that you weep over it. I pray that we would look to you in faith and that we would confess what it is that we are feeling and that we would see the compassion of a savior and then we would see you move to act to solve our great difficulty. We thank you for your compassion. We pray that you would take the seeds of of the way that you acted and the way that you lived and the way that you've 
given us the scriptures and that it would grow into faith even in the midst of our great difficulties and struggles. We thank you that you are there in the midst of all of our pain. We pray your blessing on us as we go and we seek to live lives of faith. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.